0: In the 1940s, four writers—Otis Ferguson, James Agee, Manny Farber, and Parker Tyler—forever changed the face of film criticism. Breaking with the literary and academic conventions of the day, they offered a vision of cinema that was at once deeply personal and provocative, and revealed the artful nature of Hollywood movies, otherwise deemed to be just popular entertainment. The Writings are the Subject of the Rhapsodes, an exhaustively researched new book by seminal cinema scholar David Bordwell. If you've ever taken a film class, you've read one of his textbooks. I spoke to Bordwell and regular Film Comment contributor Nick Pinkerton about the respective styles and legacies of these four critics. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by
1: David Bordwell,
2: Nick Pinkerton. Contributor to a number of United Kingdom publications, no longer being paid.
0: <laughs> um,
1: Retired, no longer being paid.
0: <laughs> I'm on the verge. I feel like I'm always on a precipice. So we're all, <laughs> we're all in this together. Um, so today uh, we're going to be discussing David's new book, The Rhapsodes, which is an examination of the writing of Otis Ferguson, James Agee, Manny Farber, and Parker Tyler. You briefly address this in acknowledgement section, sort of like uh, you know this was sort of an outgrowth of a class and some blog posts that you had written before. But really, what prompted you to write this and focus on these four writers? Because it's a it's a really wonderful, fascinating examination of language and context that these writers were w- working in.
1: Uh, well, I had I had uh, read Agee uh, when I was really young, when I was a teenager and then caught up with uh, Farber and Ferguson and Tyler a little bit later. And they had always been interesting to me as critics. In fact, I think they were pretty influential on me along with Andrew Saras and and Dwight McDonald and and Susan Sontag when I was in my teenage years and in my early 20s. So I was already intrinsically interested, but also since I was working on a larger project about Hollywood cinema in the 1940s, I naturally wanted to read through everything they said and trying to get their take on Hollywood filmmaking at the period. So when I started to do that, I realized that they were doing something that was sort of parallel to what I was doing, but we intersected in certain ways. So I thought the first thing I might do is write up my thoughts about them. And the more I did that, the more I wanted to look at their context, as you said. And so gradually, I kind of got into realizing that I could write something integral about them um, uh, as a a totality and separate. So I, I did that series of blog entries which got you know some nice responses from people. And though I had done other blog entries before and turned them into a little blog book, a couple, couple times actually, I decided this time I would actually try for a printed book because I thought it might have wider interest. So I did that and eventually a publisher f- was interested and then I withdrew the blogs and decided to work more seriously and turn them into something more thorough and, and, and dense. And so uh, you know the book came out of that. but I, it was also an experiment for me in writing not only about criticism but about um, writing essayistically and kind of conversationally the way they wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had done that before because I, I was a, in my very young days, I was a film journalist, but I hadn't I'd really gone more academic and even pedantic over my uh, career. and then suddenly uh, I just decided why not since it was since blogging is fun and you can be. Very informal in a blog, so I thought, why not? And so I did that for um, for the blog, and then eventually for these entries, and then finally for the book.
0: One of the things that's really makes this unique is that um, you really dive into the uh, like the sort of the conversation of the day. You know, getting into the Ivy League school versus the agrarian school versus you know Marxism's waning popularity among left wing uh, cultural critics. Mm-hmm. Um, how much additional sort of stuff did you go through, because it, it there's just a very wonderful sort of like you get a very wonderful sense of what this this the context or who they were responding to and why. Yeah,
1: this is, again, part of my youth. I was reading those magazines. I've been a socialist all my life, and Mm -hmm. I've been reading magazines and newspapers from the left. But since I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, it was really the 40s -hmm. that were the reference point, the sort of the wing that was anti-Stalinist or the wing that was anarchist or the wing that was sort of democratic socialist, and so I was sort of familiar with those debates in the American context in a, in a very gross way, mm-hmm. But it, so it was great fun to go back and read the debates in, in journals like Partisan Review and Politics and places like that, but also because it's fascinating the way my guys, these four people I call the rhapsodes, uh, really kind of bypassed those debates, that mm-hmm. they weren't orthodox leftists, even though they were writing for left-leaning or progressive magazines in many cases, they really were uh, kind of bypassing the sort of standard, on the one hand, celebration of proletarian culture or Stalinist culture or the the Soviet Union, uh, or uh, on the other hand, the, ri- the ritual denunciations of those mm-hmm. by the sort of uh, the the anti-communists uh, that emerged out of Partisan Review and so on, that they really zigzagged their way through those debates uh, and kind of were willing to denounce uh, politically correct films, or films that would have been considered politically correct at that mm-hmm. point, and celebrate films that would have been considered reactionary at the same time as having very sharp social critiques of their own. Um, of course, the most extreme example, I guess, is uh, Parker Tyler, a gay mm-hmm. critic, openly out, uh, who was very... Uh, uh, open about how, uh, about gender roles and about uh, subtext, erotic mm-hmm. subtext in movies, and at the same time not embracing any of the obvious ways in which someone might talk about those things. But all of them had contrarian streaks, mm-hmm. and those are, uh, I think make them more interesting to us now because they kind of dodged both the debate about communism and the debate about mass culture, and that mass culture was inherently stupefying and that only modernism was the way to have a a really solid artistic vision. So, I mean, they're just such mavericks, all four of them in different ways, mm-hmm. that I found um, going back to those debates I'd read about in my youth, but now with sort of hopefully more understanding, made them fit into a context that I found really fascinating, especially for, of course, thinking about film now.
2: It, it occurred to me reading the book that there's the very famous distinction that, that Andy Serres makes in the introduction of the American cinema between the forest critic And the trees critic, the Mm. forest critic being someone for whom movies are mostly of use for what they reflect about the culture that produces them. And a sort of bellwethers that tell us something about the uh, subconscious such as it is. The trees critic being someone who goes past that and looks at the actual text itself, sees what film by film, text by text... Uh, this work is actually made up of. And it seems to me almost what you've done is kind of a history of the foundation of a tree's criticism in the United States. Mm -hmm. These critics who for the first time are blowing right past, or to use the term that you use, using a kind of backdoor entry uh, to go past these sort of sociological issues and see, Let's just for a moment put this aside and talk about what these things are and what this experience is and how they come together and what's actually on the screen.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think they were all very sensitive to social issues. Obviously, A.G. writing about um, sharecropper families in Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, Uh, Farber, who was very militant on the subject of African-Americans, Ferguson, who was, I think you'd have to say, a nonconformist leftist, and, um, of course, Tyler, as I've mentioned, who was, uh, who was already men- part of, of several subcultures. So y- you're right. They were not insensitive to the social dimensions of films, but they also could kind of hold those in suspension mm-hmm. and look and say, actually, what's the film experience like? What are the films doing to me? And one of the cases I try to make in the book is that they're trying to construct a kind of tradition of American cinema that conveniently enough for me, starts in the early sound era with, with Ferguson saying, around 1934, starting to say, they now have figured out, in a way, how to make a movie. By 1935, and, and, and they really understand how to make a movie. Uh, it's, we're talking about the mature sound cinema now. And he starts to elaborate an aesthetic of Hollywood cinema, that isn't tied, as you say, to a reading of it as projecting social meaning or the, you know, the imagination or dreams of the culture, but rather as an artistic tradition, the way we could talk about, say, Baroque painting or Baroque music mm-hmm. or whatever. And the other guys, to me, carry that forward. Agee and Farber, especially, who were reading Ferguson, we know that, um, started to, in their own way to start to probe that tradition and say, what is valid in Hollywood as an aesthetic framework or perspective? Then along comes Tyler that flips it and says, actually, there's another way to look at all this, you know. Uh, and so you have a variety of perspectives, but all of them trying to understand Hollywood as not just a sociocultural phenomenon, but also an artistic one. And that, I think, leads directly, for as you're saying, Nick, to people like Sars.
2: And, I mean, Violet mentioned the fact that you bring in a lot of sort of the broader critical cultural context of the time. I think it's... Uh... Stark young of the new republic right. who comes in for a dragging <laughs> right. um, but also you plug into the uh, sort of literary school of close reading coming over from England in the 19 early 1930s and being adopted into a university context um, which I think is very interesting
1: yeah I, it, it, all of them had ties to other other arts um, all of them were either artists or wanna be artists and uh, what's fascinating to me is that they brought their concern with artistic making, we might say, a creativity to their criticism. So Ferguson was a fanatical jazz hound mm-hmm. and followed bands around and wrote very energetically about swing and big band music, and his sense there of wanting to know, how do these guys get this effect? I mean, you got a man who followed the bands around, you know. He went drinking with the players. He crouched under the piano in Benny Goodman's band to get to understand the craft of the music. And with AG, you have a, a guy who was a poet, a novelist, a frustrated filmmaker early in his career, uh, who really was, you know, wanted to get his hands on the creative stuff. Tyler was a novelist and a poet, and who was involved with some filmmaking himself. And uh, Farber, of course, was a visual artist. He, wanted, he was a painter, and he, ma- he did some sculpture as well. So all of them brought this kind of sense of how it's done, of, of craft, of artisanship, to their thinking about, about criticism. And so they were able, I think, to, to as with Agee's case, to transfer close reading techniques, as you say, from, from the, uh, the new critics. He studied with I.A. Richards. But all of them had that desire to probe things. And what's fascinating to me is they able to do it in a 600, 900, 1200 word review, which is not something that's easily done and certainly was not done frequently when talking about film in that day. But all of them zoom in on details of performance, details of cutting, framing, um, all kinds of things that we now take for granted, we expect our critics to be able to talk about. But back then, if you go back and look at what their peers were talking about, almost nobody talked about those things. Mm.
2: I was uh, looking earlier today at a piece that I've always loved, which is one of... It's the first of the several pieces that Otis Ferguson filed on his trip out west, New York to L.A. And it just struck me, rereading this, you have that same kind of just avid curiosity being applied to the act of a transcontinental railroad trip Mm -hmm. what's what's it like to go from new york to chicago on the 20th century what is it like when you change the super chief and what are what is the light in arizona like as opposed to like new mexico and you really have a sense of him plying people working on the train for details along Mm -hmm. the way and this this just curiosity to sponge up everything that can be known and you have Lots of wonderful instances that you pull out of his uh, music criticism, talking about the fact that he would sort of perch under the piano uh, when going to see big band uh, performances uh, and the extraordinary sort of importance that he put to that aspect of things and this just real drive to break things down, get under the
1: hood. Yep. Yep, absolutely, into the kitchen. No, it's true, and he. I mean, what you get with all of these guys is a fascination with how things are done, how things are made, getting behind the scenes. I mean, with with, for instance, A. G., who changes in this respect. Uh, he, in his youth, he wants to be uh, a filmmaker. He writes imaginary screenplays, but when he takes up the job of reviewing, he says, "I'm not going to get involved with production I, because I then I would it would change my judgment." to actually realize how difficult it is even to make a bad movie (laughs) would warp my sense of what the film's value is. So I'd rather not know. That's what he says when he starts out. But by the end of his career he's offering scripts to Charlie Chaplin and John Huston. He wants to be a part of this mix. He goes out to Hollywood just as Ferguson did and meets David Selznick. He meets all these people and he realizes I want to get behind the scenes and see how this is done and I want to be part of it. So all of them and this was, I think, common for a lot of, cr- of critics in that time, were both creators and critics. They were doing their own creative work. Think of Mary McCarthy or Virgil Thompson writing um, dramatic criticism, literary criticism, or in the case of Thompson, music criticism. I mean, these are working artists who to f- to you know fund themselves to keep going? Their day jobs would be writing criticism, so there's a constant shuttling to and fro between creative work and critical work that I also think we see in these in these writers as well. So this makes them more inclined to be trees critics, I think. In uh, A.G., I think
2: more than anyone else discussed, you do see a a touch of the frustrated filmmaker come up from time to time. You pull out. Uh, I believe that bit from uh, the review of The Lost Weekend where he's taking Billy Wilder and company uh, to task because they don't really accurately represent the many cinematic possibilities of the hangover, and he proceeds to spend multiple paragraphs (laughs) like a man very
1: familiar with the symptoms of the Irish (laughs) flu. You're right. He understands what a hangover is like, and you can tell he's also thought about how to film one. (laughs) Exactly.
0: And I guess um, maybe that could be a good transition back to talking about, like, language, because you cite uh, Farber's um, review of The Postman Always Rings Twice, and just sort of, like, breaking down the language uh, in this particular paragraph, which is, quote, the movie The Postman Always Rings Twice is almost too terrible to walk out of. The wife spends her time in what should be a jungle, washing the several thousand stunning play suits she wears to wait on tables, going for moonlight swims dancing stylish Roombas with the hobo. I think the best Bobby Sox touches are the white turban that Cora wears to wash dishes, the love scenes which show Cora in yum-yum pose and outfit, looking like a frozen popsicle, with Frank ogling her at six paces, and probably the director in the background swooning over a hamburger. And (laughs) And just like, again, like I said, the subsequent paragraph is just sort of being like, well, what he does with and in here is sort of not what you would expect. And then also, like, what the hell is this? What the hell is he saying in this? Like, it's so, it, like, the, linguistically, this is such a complex. I'm happy
1: to play Farber's straight man. Yes. I mean, you know, really, you can do it over and over. It's like losing the football, you know? Oh, he, kind of, he sets me up and I, no, it's true. I mean, uh, late Farber is really rococo. I mean, really something. But you can see seeds of it here, I think, where he's starting to like spin off in various directions. And um, that playfulness is something I found I really liked in all of them. They all had that in one degree or another. I mean, maybe Ferguson is a little bit more the the film noir detective, you know, wrapping these things out. But he's got his own little weird habits as well. And Ag is maybe more of the self-conscious romantic poet. And Tyler is definitely the more surrealist because that was the artistic school he subscribed to. Mm-hmm. But even in Farber, you get a sense of almost a verbal collage here, where he's cutting, like you know, kind of uh, cutting and pasting going on. So I mean, the fascination—this is why I called them the rhapsodes—is because each one of them, in his own way, kind of gets carried away the way. We, we, you know, classicists speak of epic poets being visited by the gods and kind of pulled into an ecstasy of just this level of verbal activity that doesn't seem human. And by analogy, I tried to suggest that all these guys, independent of their their smartness as critics, their acuity as critics, was also a a real kind of master of language in 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 eccentric ways. To go back to Nick's point, that was not part of literary culture at that time, you look at Edmund Wilson or Mary McCarthy or some of these very distinguished critics of the period, they don't write this way. Right. It's almost as if film freed these guys up to be a little wilder than literary culture allowed most of the more established critics, let alone poor old Stark Young, who, whose reputation still baffles me, but who was considered very much the dean of dramatic critics of that period.
0: Yeah. And I think at at one point you cite the fact that, you know, Hollywood isn't the Red River plant. It isn't it isn't Fordism. It is, you know, it's more artisanal than that, that where everyone on the line is putting something unique. And there's clearly a sense of these critics picking up on that yep. and responding to that yep. and sort of giving, yep. absolutely spiraling these associations that are just really freeing and um, when done badly are painful to read, and as you say, they didn't telegraph their punchlines, which I think is always a- uh, It's true,
1: it's true. They were much more fluid about that. Too and cool. You were, your, point is, your point is really right, because they all understood the collective nature of Hollywood creation, and, and for someone like Ferguson, who admired basically working, he liked yeah. to see guys work, and his jazz players were, like, above all, sweating. Right. And someone like A. G., who, of course, with his own kind of sympathies, understood um, what artistic work was like. And um, Tyler was committed to the idea that the Hollywood movie was just a three-ring circus and that it was kind of a stew that everybody threw something into. And then uh, Farber, who's prepared almost again like an abstract expressionist painter or something to see this patch as over against that patch or this other one, those all understood, I think, the, the tensions or, or, or the kind of mixed qualities of Hollywood mm-hmm. films, which were, again, back to this idea of collective work. They come out of the fact that these movies are made. They're not auteurists, oddly enough. Uh, if you right. think about their reaction just to, say, Orson Welles, you'd think that these four guys would think Citizen Kane was the best movie ever made. They're almost uniformly against this picture. Er, it's true. Early on, Farber says something complimentary about it but all of them have by the end of by the end of the 40s all of them have very severe reservations about what many people consider the greatest movie ever made partly because wells is such a showboater mm-hmm. he's just you know he's he's living high off the hog and this is something they they one way or another found a little too overweening i think
0: i wish i could remember the name but there was some technician interviewed in a um in a documentary about Wells and he, there's, they cut to him and he just, this old man, this little old man just screams, he was so goddamn glorious, And that's how I always think of <laughs> Wilson well, Wells. <laughs> well, you know, there's
1: that great line, you know, uh, John Hausman, I think, said it. Maybe someone else did. Uh, there but for the grace of God goes God. Exactly.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, and Nick, you would written, when you reviewed this for Sight and Sound. For
1: which I'm very grateful, Nick. Thank you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a, an English publication beloved funded by the uk government r.i.p uh, r.i.p <laughs> um you you said that you were familiar you you know you have obviously read these critics you're familiar with these critics, but a lot of the stuff that is in the book is sort of new to you
2: Well, in particular, um, I think most of it's from uh, Alfred Kazin's starting out in the 30s, but a lot of the biographical information about Otis Ferguson, who I had never really known as a person, and who comes through very vividly as this sort of brusque, perhaps slightly contrarian figure with a real chip on his shoulder about all of the Uh, you know, silver spoon in the mouth, uh, uh, Marxist who he's surrounded with and who is always looking for some excuse to get into it uh, with his office mates. Uh, That was fantastic. And then, I mean, also what one is able to read of Ferguson's writing about music, Farber's actual art writing. We all know that he had a past in that but very little of it is readily available in fact I mean Farber generally is a figure who has been kind of coming out of the shadows a little bit over the last few years because the version of Manny Farber that certainly I had for a lot of years and that most people had for a lot of years was a very curated version of Manny Farber which is his negative space Manny Farber which I believe the earliest thing in there is 1950 maybe and not many pieces from the 50s yeah So you get a very skewed perspective on what the total body of work is. So it's invaluable in that it gets us a little bit closer to the whole truth of Manny Farber. And moreover, you uh, point out the fact that he was uh, somewhat prone to reversing decisions Mm -hmm. without uh, asking for a mea culpa. Uh, I think uh, The Best Years of Our Lives is one that a you point out, truckload truckload of, <laughs> A truckload of schmaltz. A phrase which read once, I have never been able to forget, right. and I will never be able to enjoy The Best Years of Our Lives Well, I,
1: <laughs> I overlook it, because I liked the movie before I read Manny Farber on it, and I do like Manny Farber's criticism very much, but... It was astonishing for me to go back and see what he said about it upon first viewing, which he thought it was one of the great triumphs of American cinema. Mm-hmm. And it was the same with Kane, which he, he really praised in, in, when he first saw it. Um, so the thing is that um, Farber is a fascinating case, and I do think the point you're raising about his art criticism is central. Uh, he was kind of a genius critic, I think, of the visual arts. His his critical writing about painting and sculpture in the 20s, which is, sorry, in the his 20s, when he's writing about films at the same time, are extraordinary, and it just baffles me that they aren't more widely known. Mm-hmm. I really think that he's he's one of the great American art critics of that period, and the connection to film is fascinating, that's one of the things I tried to explore, but the the fact that he is tr- taking again in the art world a contrarian position where you lined up either essentially with surrealism or some version of abstract painting usually abstract expressionist painting mm. uh, he really was very pluralistic he thought highly of uh, illusionistic painting you know representational painting and uh he he was i would say a more precise and careful critic of what was actually again on the canvas than uh, most of people like Clement Greenberg uh, who were very doctrinaire and programmatic about what they liked and kind of general uh, because he wasn't himself a painter the way Farber was. Farber could get into the technique of the painting because he did that stuff and I think that eye that we value so much in the 50s and 60s and 70s writings of Farber is already there in this very young man and again a contrarian in the art world gallery scene that he's operating in. So that gets transferred to cinema and he begins to become quite pluralistic about cinema too in his day, you know, that there is no set, we think of him as the great advocate for the hard-boiled action picture on the one hand and the sort of New York avant-garde by the end of the 60s and the other, but he's, he's willing to like all kinds of movies in the 60s, or sorry, in the 40s, um, Lillian Hellman adaptations and things like that, uh, so he's in a way, he's looking for values, and pictorial and dramatic values, I think kind of in the Ferguson vein, uh, but of his, uh, w- with his own spin on them because he is very much a visual critic and trying to find those details of, of, of pictorial storytelling that also carry an emotion. They're also expressive. And that uh, idea of illusionism that's also emotionally freighted is something that really set him against the art world of his period.
2: One thing I, I wondered a bit about, because all four of your subjects, as you point out in the introduction, were sort of reintroduced to a reading public in this cycle of film criticism collections, which emerged beginning with uh, the collection of James A. G.'s Collected Criticism and moved on through Negative Space and the film criticism of Otis Ferguson, which has a wonderful Andy Sarris introduction. Uh, and all of, these, all of these names who had sort of cut their teeth uh, in the late 1930s and 40s, many of whom uh, or several of whom did not make it much, much past that point, um, they were all reintroduced in the 60s. I wondered if in the course of your research you ran across anybody who seemed to have some kind of potential uh who perhaps didn't enjoy this uh renaissance uh during the golden age of film criticism collections were there any kind of off the beaten path uh critics that you ran across
0: deep cuts deep cuts <laughs> give exactly them, give them up
1: <laughs> well i wish i i wish i had some i wish i had at least a consistent career profile for some there were a lot of intelligent things written about films in the 40s i think uh, written by people who strayed in from adjacent areas, and in the sort of the epilogue to the book or the back matter, I throw in some references to people who were writing interesting things. Um, Eric Bentley, a drama critic who wrote in, quite intelligently about film, I think at the period, he would be one i wouldn't say that he has his work has a, a kind of a totality to it because he wrote very little about film generally but but he was looking intelligently at films, I think. Um, but no, I didn't find any un, un, unexamined or uh, unexhumed uh, people. I think those are my four because they really do stand out and they were, as you say, reintroduced uh, to readers in, in the 60s and 70s. Um, what I find interesting is that um, when you look at the mid-60s especially, you look at Cale and Sarris emerging as the salient American film critics. Uh, and then you have a host of others around them: John Simon, Dwight Macdonald, Pauline Kael, Renata Adler. The list goes on and on and on. And many of whom collected their works in books, mm-hmm. something that seems strange to us now because very few reviewers get their 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 work collected in books. I think Terence Rafferty has done, and um, Kent Jones did, uh, but very few. Only Roger Ebert really uh, consistently, you know, managed to create these collections. But in those days. Everybody had a collection, and in fact, uh, Farber, as you say, Nick, Farber and Tyler was uh, collecting his work. These guys kind of came to people's notice by being collected. But um, it's a fascinating period because what people seemed to do at that time was see them as sort of, oh, well, these guys are out there but they didn't see them the way I'm inclined to see them, which is as kind of laying the found work, uh, foundations, the groundwork for what became this whole new age of celebrity criticism in the 60s. And that seemed to me kind of interesting in its own right, that clearly Kale, Saras, probably some others, had read them, but somehow never felt that they were a part of a tradition or never acknowledged them very much. I mean, Saras did after the collection came out, um, but None of them really felt that they were actually following a lineage, I think, uh, even though they were, and, and they were you know, just part of that tradition. So it's a fascinating case of a break that actually reignited interest in these folks. But now, even so, I mean, the fact that A.G. and Farber have got volumes in the Library of America series says a lot, but Tyler doesn't, um, Ferguson doesn't, and I found that the film criticism of Otis Ferguson, marvelous though that book is, does not include some of his most interesting pieces. Uh, if you read through everything he's done, and he wrote about everything. He wrote about books. He wrote about music. He wrote as the utility infielder um, on The New Republic. Uh, he has fascinating literary criticism as well as music and film criticism too. And he wrote essays. The mention, the mention you made, Nick, of the, of the trip to the West Coast uh, is kind of echoed in a grand scale his writing about being at sea because he was, of course, by temperament, a sailor. Mm-hmm. So, and that material is collected in his music criticism to some degree. But there's so much there that has not been collected, uh, just of Ferguson. He would certainly merit a volume in that series as well, it seems to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason why collections were so important is that because it's by virtue of how publishing worked, where it was just like something would be, a magazine would be published. And if you didn't buy it and you didn't read what was in it, and and if you didn't save it, it essentially ceased to exist after a certain point, you know, like it's just, and now again, I don't know. We always talk about like the myth of availability, but like, you know, it, I mean, now it, there are like you know, it's more searchable, there's bibliographies, but still they're like, you know, if Manny Farber wrote something for some like, you know, some review for... Uh, Art in America or something. Yeah, yeah, Art in America, that's, that exists, but if it was for a lesser known publication and it's not saved, and it's not really cataloged, it, it doesn't exist. Well, while it, you're
1: completely right. I mean, Far, uh, Farber's a good case in point, but so is Tyler. Tyler wrote for so many little magazines, Surrealist mm-hmm. and little, tiny circulation magazines. I had to go to our... Uh, rare book room to find them. And you point about the myth of availability is dead right. Uh, Try to find a Newsweek article from the 1940s. I mean there's this huge, before 1970 or so, you might as well not even try. Because it's all, you're going to go back to the library. And I had to, for instance, I've had to go looking for the New Republic stuff. Our library in Madison didn't have a complete run. Some people had stolen some volumes apparently. So I went to like other libraries in the area to read these old articles. Um, They're not, you know, they're not online. I mean, these would have to be dug out of libraries. And and I think that you're right, that, that back in the day, unless people kept clippings, uh, they really would have, the books really became the, the, the standard versions of what these people had done. Also, because publishers then were trading on this new interest in cinema. Right. I mean, be- with the rise of European art cinema coming into the States, the rise of the beginning of the new Hollywood with movies like Easy Rider and graduate and Bonnie and Clyde and so on, you've got a new interest in film generally, and so trade publishers would publish these books. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, Viking and these other publishers were anxious to publish books by these uh, critics, collections of their work. So there was a sense in which we were getting kind of, you know, as you say, the authorized versions of these things, and it was uh, a period of great excitement. People were talking about cinema. We didn't have the net, we didn't have much on TV, a, a talking about cinema, that really were these people were the, the critics that were guiding public taste.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, as we as we talk about distinguishing characteristics of our day, uh, as opposed to the period you're writing in, I think one thing that's worth perhaps touching on is in at least two cases, I'm thinking of that of Farber and that of AG, you highlight critics who have a tendency to kind of argue both ends of a film at the same time Mm -hmm. a quality that you refer to as a kind of push pull quality Um, and that's in many respects very distinct from the kind of critical economy that we exist in today which tends to encourage extreme reactions one way or another if one is trying to uh, publicize a piece of work; it will tend to come with some punchy adjectives or the information. The review almost in the uh, tweet telling you, you know, here's my takedown. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to advertise a piece by here's my dense thicket of ambivalent here's responses.
0: My... <laughs> <laughs> well, and also the Rotten Tomatoes; it's either it's a splat. Or it's a whole tomato. Right. That's right. When, exactly. when
2: when a rotten tomato employee goes to hell, which they will, <laughs> they have to try to find out if like negative space is fresh or splats. That's what right. they
1: do. I know. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, uh, one of the things I thought I'd pursue in, in this other book I'm writing on, on Hollywood in the 40s is to find out the origin of the multiple stars system, or the ranking system. I think I found it, actually. Oh, really? I think I found it. I think it's Kathleen Carroll in the New York Daily News who starts it back in the 30s. But at any rate, yes, the idea that, that a reviewer is, is essentially giving consumer advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, your hard-earned money, is it worth it? You know, that sort of thing. Uh, and that's something that A.G. and all these guys really uh, didn't really indulge in very much. I mean, they were interested in thinking about the films and talking about the films. And that push-pull you talk about, it's funny you mentioned the... Uh, uh, I think always think of it in respect to Farber in the passage that Violet read, where um, The Postman Always Rings Twice is a movie that is almost too terrible to walk out of. Almost. <laughs> well, this is like a jujitsu <laughs> throw. I mean, okay, is it terrible? Well, yes, but it's too terrible to walk out of what does that mean and then it's almost too terrible to walk out of you know I mean how many circles do we go around here and as you say AG does it in a more fraught and kind of pathetic way but um all of them were as you say were living with ambivalence because they had an ambivalent attitude towards Hollywood many of their reviews and this doesn't come across in the book because I really treat them as trying to figure out what Hollywood is uh I treat them as critics of ideas who have ideas Uh, which most critics nowadays obviously don't, Uh, they uh, said, you know, uh, a lot of Hollywood movies just aren't that good. They really aren't. Mm -hmm. But here's a crucial point, I think, um, and it's something I should have dwelt on in the book more, and that is that uh, the quality critics that we think of as people who really write serious work can't be daily critics on the whole. They either are weekly critics or write even more infrequently. I mean, most of these guys had a weekly column 900 words or something like that and Someone like A. G. would go see the film two three four times and try to figure out what he thought about it as well As seeing many films and decide which particular ones he was going to write about Uh, He didn't have to have that grind of every day cranking out a review the only critic I know who had that daily grind was Roger Ebert who actually managed to make it work I think he was he he was an intellectual and he did make it work, Uh, but he would come in as I remember on Thursday, and write like five reviews of everything he had seen in those two or three days before that, and just bang them out. That's real newspaper work. That's what he was doing. But these guys were in between, I think, in between the sort of essay and the newspaper piece. Mm-hmm. You know, they were able to do. They did do all do think pieces of one kind or another, but in a way, they, I think they tried to make every review a kind of think piece and try to bring out those complex issues that you that you re- reference as well. But it's also led, because of the compression of space, it led them to that kind of gnomic style where you find these sort of weird juxtapositions, these kind of collages of different attitudes uh, in a small space, Mm. because that's what they've got. But it it is a kind of way of acknowledging to your reader that you have, if not conflicted attitude, a kind of textured attitude towards the film that can be, uh, if not explained, because they're not academics, but expressed or acknowledged, in the way they write but I think you're right I think that you come away from a lot of their thinking and I think Tyler is in a way the best example because even though he had a whole book available to him he writes whole books and chapters he'll devote a whole chapter to a film that just gives him more space to play out these dramas of equivocation you know and uh, what and to play with the possibilities uh in the film at greater length his book on Chaplin it becomes is like a hallucinatory book. It's a phana- it's a phantasmagoria. He just plays with all these possible interpretations of what Chaplin's myth is like, uh, to a point where you feel like he could have written the book like three times longer. So there's a way in which this, this the the, the drama of hesitancy or complexity that you're talking about gets played out partly of these guys because of the small scale they work in, but also because their imaginations can just run rife and they can keep going with it.
0: Mm. Because I feel like maybe that's where the influence of someone like Adorno or that school comes in because it's like, it's acknowledging that, yes, I'm being manipulated, but then also being like, okay, so this is how I was manipulated. And yes, I really did feel these things, but here's why maybe it's not great. Or, but then also being like, but I did feel this. Like that, that put, that's where the push and the pull is so fascinating to me, at least. Yeah,
1: that's but. the part of Adorno that he doesn't acknowledge, is, is, right. is being drawn in. Yes, With him, there's always, he's always standing to one side and condemning, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't say he's in bad faith, but there's a sense in which he never had enough playfulness in him to really go into the work. Right. knowing that he could come out of it if he wanted to but there was this suspicion that if he got pulled in somehow he'd never come out and that's not something these people felt you know, right. that with Adorno there's always this profound melancholy dislike <laughs> of the possibility of anyone having fun sometime <laughs> you know uh, that, that possibility is so suspect to him that I think he can't uh, he can't acknowledge that even he could do it also I think that even though he clearly had the technical knowledge to analyze music Even his work, to me, the work I've read anyway, on on the the composers he's seriously interested in, is not really that analytical. Um, And certainly when he talks about jazz or pop songs, he doesn't even bother. Whereas somebody like, um, the example I give is is, uh, Ferguson. Ferguson knew his music, and he could make you understand in very evocative ways how the music worked. And Adorno never does that. He stands out from it and simply condemns it. So there's a way in which that push-pull, I think, doesn't really get the full you know, full dynamic in, in, in Adorno. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I mean, that push-pull quality, it puts me in mind of uh, Alfred Kazan again, mm. function of criticism today, this idea that the duty of the critic isn't to act as an explainer, and that the function of criticism, good criticism, is to give a reader a vantage point of a mind grappling with a text, not you know, coming to you with the answers ready-made, not feeding every text into a template or a predetermined value system mm-hmm. where uh, you know it either passes or fails the scratch test. It either is or is not as good as a dozen movies made in the Soviet <laughs> Union in the 1920s. What is it
0: saying? <laughs>
2: <laughs> but rather... Instead of, instead, of, instead of bemoaning that popular culture so-called isn't what it could be, saying, well, what is it exactly? And that seems to be the unifying quality of the figures that you're
1: looking at. That's a good way to put it, I think, yes. That they took popular culture on its own terms. And we're, all w- were willing to go down into the gutter a little bit with it. But also at the same time, they wanted to, uh, the way Ferguson put it was, what is being done? How can I tell people what's being done, and how can I give feedback to the people who are doing it, you know? And that, so I mean, he thought about criticism as also communicating not just with uh, the consumers, audience, whatever, but with the artists. And again, that comes out of writing for j- with, about jazz artists, who presumably he would be telling them what he was saying and thinking about their work. So there's a way in which I think he thought there was even a feedback mechanism there, mm-hmm. uh, and he was willing to wor- to work in that loop. And so I think there's a, exactly what you're saying that. They were not trying to set themselves up as these absolute judges, which is what you find in some critics I admire, like Dwight MacDonald. I admire him a great deal. But this is a man who clearly is not going to get into what makes Otto Preminger make, you know, advising consent. He doesn't care about that. <laughs> he just knows there's a meretricious novel at the heart of this movie and that it's Hollywood treating politics in a certain way. So he's just, he's just going to stand suspended above that. And because he's such a good writer and such a clever person, I'm going to enjoy what he has to say about it but I don't think he's engaging with, as you say, what makes popular culture the way it is.
2: In some respects, I thought uh, the outlier of the group, because he's a bit older than everyone else, because of his sexual preference, Uh, is Parker Tyler. He's also sort of an interesting figure for you to mix it up with because he's working in a register that a lot of your own writing... Uh, I would say contravenes. You are a man who likes his cinemetrics. You like your <laughs> your hard facts and figures, and this is not really the domain of Parker Tyler. I wonder how you kind of how you came to a reckoning with him. I mean, part of it I think is that even though he is operating, you know, in the realm of soft sciences, he has a sort of benevolent attitude toward the text that he's approaching. It's not uh, a condemnatory approach. Yeah, he's not
1: de- demystifying it. He, well, if you think a Hollywood movie is a charade, you want to play with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah exactly. No, he's, uh, He's to me, I think he's one of the most fascinating figures because, first, because I admire his writing. I think he's a wonderful writer, at least at his best. I think the later work is is kind of pedantic. But, um, but I do think uh, there's something else there, because in his efforts to try to expose the dynamics of these movies that he finds interesting, um, he takes on certain positions. Uh, he criticizes certain positions that I find also worth criticizing. So in a sense, we have the same, I won't say enemies, but we have the same adversaries. Um, and at the same time, I think, Exactly because he's kind of exploratory in the way he thinks about things, he actually exposes things. He says a lot. So the first point, I mean, you'd think someone who thinks that Hollywood movies are a dream would be part of that whole trend that does emerge very saliently in the 40s of looking at Hollywood as kind of the repressed of American culture, the unconscious of the public, that sort of thing. And that's where you get, as you say, the social scientists of the period, and often very moralistic social scientists, mm. who say things like, you know, well, clearly the American public is very sick, and, and they're very concerned about this, that, and the other, and they're underlying, and very kind of uh, chiding the, the public. And um, Tyler just goes in the other direction. He thinks that if it's a dream, then all kinds of things become possible. Once you <laughs> would think that this is these movies are like dreams, well, then why can't Mildred Pierce actually want to kill her daughter? Something like that, you know? <laughs> Uh, so there's that whole side of it, uh, which I find very interesting because it leads him into uh, what I would say are narrative and stylistic analyses. I mean, when he talks about Citizen Kane, which he's obsessed with and comes back to again and again in his writing, um, everything he says about Citizen Kane comes back to certain issues about why is the story told this way, why does the film begin with a camera going into a landscape. I mean, it takes him down into that same kind of nitty-gritty detail Nick, that you were talking about the trees critics go for. So instead of going into these gaseous generalizations about you know the undertext of the film, he actually goes through the film. He burrows into the film. He also, think, I think, finds a wonderful way to understand Hollywood conventions uh, by looking at these, looking at it as a kind of crazy game. So, for instance, this idea of the of the single instance. Uh, we know they've had sex. They must have had sex. <laughs> Why can't we see it? <laughs> but then that allows us to think, well, maybe they didn't have sex. Or maybe it's bad sex. Or, uh, you know, for instance, he says, well, obviously in Suspicion, one of the problems, one of the reasons that Johnny Asgard acts so badly is she's not letting him sleep with her anymore. You know, well, well actually, that's interesting to note about, about the change in, their, in her attitude towards him as the movie goes along. So, I mean, his kind of things that might seem kind of wild actually usually drive him back into the movie. And... Noticing these conventions, noticing these features of the films, uh, make him, I think, an interesting critic in this respect. He's actually grappling in in a kind of slippery way with the way the Hollywood movies work. He's also interested, I think, because he he comes up with something, I think, that you find also in other writers. I think Jeffrey O'Brien's probably the best writer who does this. The idea that a movie plugs into all these other movies and creates a kind of phantasmagoric blur that suddenly this reminds you of that, reminds you of this other thing. And you begin to think, well actually it's all one big realm out there. Mm. So that the Hollywood, what he calls Hollywood's narcissism, Hollywood is always talking about itself. So when he sees the picture of Dorian Gray, he says, well you know, this is a movie about being a juvenile lead getting old. You're a beautiful boy, but what happens, you know, 30 years later, you're John Barrymore falling apart. You know, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, the passage I quote at the end of that chapter where he thinks about these young anonymous actors in the movie Gung Ho playing in this submarine picture, he said well you think about it, they're in the submarine but they should be in real submarine (laughs) because these are the guys who are cannon fodder, they've avoided getting drafted and maybe when they get off this picture they will be drafted and suddenly this opens up this whole possibility of Hollywood as another world behind the screen and the connections among these different things that you see. And that's a fascinating idea, I think. And But it, again, it makes you think about the movies as movies. So I find a lot of my formalist leanings kind of reinfer, reinforced by these sometimes pretty wild speculations that, that he gets involved in. Um, about narrative, about plot conventions, about star life, about these sort of I don't know things that, things that most moralists would find very bad about Hollywood he says, well, let's just take them as the rules of the game and play along and see where they lead us. So I find that it goes back to the points that both of you have made about this kind of positive but not uncritical attitude towards popular culture that uh, kind of enables you to play with it and at the same time be a little detached from it.
2: I mean, I think what's very special uh, about Tyler, particularly in that period, but just generally, is uh, you mentioned the phrase Hollywood narcissism. He's somebody who could use that terminology without any implied pejorative right. value right. judgment.
1: <laughs> right. Right. right, it's part of the like, game. Like, what, it's a, it's gas. what yeah. a gas. What a gas, exactly. And, you know, by the end of his career, when he's writing about sex in films... It's clear he loves these really grade B erotic films, you know, softcore porn. I mean, these, the problem he has is that, the, the problem, the reason that Hollywood and indeed the avant-garde declines is that they've read him. They understand, they've made explicit all these kind of underlying scenarios that he had fun pulling out of classic Hollywood films. Now they're on the surface, you know. So these films just become less interesting. These new films just become less interesting because they're not... Poetic. I mean, that's the other thing I think that's interesting about him is that he's very much a classic avant-gardist on that, in that sort of wild cocteau tradition of, you know, you should leave things to the imagination, you should leave things implicit, you should let people kind of play with this. But instead of shoving it out all in front of them the way, say, Postcode Hollywood does or the way the underground cinema of, of you know, the 60s does, that is just sort of crude to him, you know, it's <laughs> not refined enough. And so in a way, I think it doesn't call forth some of his best writing or thinking. He just can't get into it. But he also rightly, I think, suggests that they make manifest what he was kind of like trying to trace in a more subterranean way.
0: Well, unfortunately, we're sort of running out of time. So I think we'll end it there. But um, before we close, in the spirit of last 10 films, let's go around and say one film we saw recently that we liked. Um, I will go first to give you time to erase the panicked look from your faces. Yours, it better not
2: be
1: mine.
0: Oh, I don't think it will be. Um, Does
1: it have to be a recent film? Just something we saw recently? Just
0: something you saw recently. It can be old or new. So I saw Elizabeth Subrin's A Woman Apart, uh, which is something I've been sort of eagerly anticipating. I really liked that she's uh, exploring, I guess, sort of the current state of what it really means to be an actress and sort of the frustrations and limitations that exist both in New York and in Hollywood, which are, you know, the main character is sort of lost herself and can't even really play herself anymore. Um, and sort of how, I mean, still, I, there were parts of it that I was sort of like, okay, this is a little cliche. This is a little, maybe a little mumblecore, but ultimately I think it's a really beautifully shot and sort of, I don't want to say important, But um, I think it's a very good first step in sort of exploring craft and existential, you know, just sort of like, well, what does it mean to age? What does it mean to be in a profession again where it's like you're cannon fodder? So
2: Uh, well, for me, it would have to be Independence Day Resurgence.
0: (laughs) Roland Emmerich,
2: (laughs) the devil incarnate,
0: the auteur behind. I I actually
2: like the first one, but I haven't seen the new one yet. I haven't seen it. I'm just goofing.
0: The, uh, it's The Shallows. Uh, it's,
2: I may call it Sarah's Cree de Cure, yes. The Shallows, uh, which I saw uh, with an opening night paying audience uh, last night at mm-hmm. the uh, Regal Union Square Theater. Uh, I think it's an elegant, tightly packed uh, little movie. It belongs to uh, kind of an endangered species, in my opinion, which is the uh well-honed kind of mid-range genre movie uh <laughs> it has one of the best impromptu surgery scenes that i have uh, <laughs> that i have seen i won't even say in recent memory this might just be one for the books <laughs> uh and i think uh Serra here as in his non-stop is very deft with kind of integrating the iphone technology and the way that we spend a lot of our time kind of half lost uh, mm. in our pocket computers into a narrative uh setting in a way that doesn't feel too shoehorned in or forced uh i just couldn't couldn't have enjoyed myself more well,
0: that's great i because it always it always is like drives me insane when it's just like oh i got a text message it's exposition oh good <laughs> oh, I good. mean I it, have no bars this is a plot point I have no bars <laughs> it it has a exposition
2: heavy first reel oh. as uh, folks used to say but it's very supplely integrated exposition supple <laughs> and uh, it's all thriller no filler from there on
0: excellent
1: well it's good I have to see both these I haven't seen them <laughs> well um, I've been in New York for you know, almost three months the first movie I saw here was the best movie I saw but I can't really count it because it's Ozu's Equinox Flower. It played at the Metrograph and, you know, the best movie in the city uh, that day. I had to go see it in 35 millimeter, no less. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've seen several other things that I thought were interesting in the Universal series at uh, MoMA. Uh, I saw Green Room, which I thought was pretty good. Um, but last night, uh, I wanted to zone out, so I turned on HBO. And um, we don't have HBO at home. I don't. We have cable, but we don't subscribe to HBO. So I, I forgot about how how rep- repetitive cable can, movies can be, so I watched uh, a, a scene from um, Gone Girl again, and I re- it was a it's a pure expositional scene when Boney the police woman is questioning the um, the uh, Ben Affleck character, and I thought, well this guy's a born filmmaker, uh, this guy every shot is exactly what it should be is precise. It's slightly different from the last shot of that person that you saw. It was reframed maybe in post-production rather than in filming. But everything was precisely controlled. And then I switched over and watched a film that I hadn't seen since it came out, that I remembered liking. Um, It was just starting, so I was able to see the whole thing and not the bits and pieces I usually see on these HBO transmissions. Um, Signs by, of all people, M. Night Shyamalan. Now, I'm an admirer of Unbreakable, and at the time I was an admirer of Signs. And so I sat down and thought, let's watch it. Well, it's got its problems, but again, the dude's a filmmaker. I mean, mm-hmm. every shot is exactly what it should be, and uh, it's exactly framed, it's precise. There are rhymes, a shot that we see at the beginning of the film, comes back with a variation later in the film. There's just a level of visual intelligence to this guy's filmmaking that I have not seen in later films by him, but at that point he was had a pretty hot hand, I think, and um, I was really quite moved by it at the end in a way I had you know, had not even remembered being when I first saw it, whenever it was decades ago. Um, even though like one shot where you see a flat wall and you see the shape of a cross, but it's a faded cross. The cross has been taken down. It's like the cross is like bled into the wall. Uh, one shot, doesn't dwell on it. It's off in the corner of the frame. And I think, okay, this is a kind of Hollywood style, tight, unemphatic, exposition that's going to become important later it gets talked out maybe some points are made a little too explicitly in the dialogue but the arc of the thing mixing kind of the birds together with uh, Nation of the Body Snatchers and other kinds of things in a new mix um, I thought showed you know well Hollywood can still do that stuff so that's when I saw just last night that I thought yeah yeah, cinema's worth following still worth worth watching movies
0: (laughs) Well, on that upbeat note thank you both for coming this has been such a pleasure
1: thank you for having me thank you
0: You've been listening to the Film Comment podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcommentcom slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.